This is Letters from the Lunchbox, a podcast centered on the short stories written by author Raylene Burnett. Her work was inspired by powerful messages a father left on 3x5 cards in his children's lunch sacks as he battled cancer. He'd sometimes write words filled with humor, or other times he'd somberly ponder the future or offer gentle reflections. Perhaps most of all, he'd relay encouragement and well wishes for all that lay ahead. Each episode, we invite a guest to share their story and ask the question, what would your 3x5 card say? Olivia, and here is author Raylene Burnett with this week's story, Snow Boots. I'm standing in my driveway watching a screaming five-year-old girl chase a big dog across my yard through drifts of snow. She has one snow boot off and one snow boot on, which is making her pursuit a little bit perilous. I'm sure that foot dressed only in a sock is wet and cold. So I yell out to her to come back and stop. But she ignores me. Her name is Olivia and she is my daughter. And she is crying and screaming and yelling at the dog. Come back! She screams dog knows he is in no danger of being caught by a five-year-old and even teases her with a close pass then gallops easily away down the sidewalk down the street and disappears between two houses olivia stands still her crying subsides and she watches the dog fade away in the distance She knows it's over. She turns around, cries again, and hobbles up and down towards me. Ten minutes ago, there were no tears. There was no frantic dog chase, and we were building a snowman in the front yard when Olivia complained of snow in her boot. She followed me into the garage, and we... She plopped down on the cement floor and I tugged her boot off and I felt her sock to see how wet it was. And then she said, Mama, look, look. And I turned around and I saw a dog. He was coming in through our open garage door into the garage. I'd seen him before. He was a large, sandy colored dog. I was pretty confident he wasn't a threat. I'd seen him playing with the neighborhood kids before, and he had a collar and a tag, so I knew he belonged to someone. But he came in the garage, and he smelled the shovels and the bikes and the bags of fertilizer over in the corner. And Olivia saw him and patted her legs and said, Come here! Come here! And he did, and he came close. And she patted his head and she rubbed her fingers through the thick fur on the side and she laughed 
as he stepped in between her long outstretched legs and started sniffing the boot that was by her side. He's smelling my boot, Olivia said, giggling. She watched him as he put his nose deep inside the wet shoe. And then she watched as he pulled his nose out, opened his mouth, and grabbed the boot between his teeth and ran as fast as he could out down the driveway. He was halfway out, halfway down the driveway, carrying his pink and white trophy when Olivia realized he was not coming back. My boot, she screamed, my boot! Her tears came fast and with one foot clad in a sock and one foot dressed in a snow boot, she ran after him, chasing and howling for her snow boot. But now the chase was over. Her boot was gone and I walked back down the driveway. I picked her up, carried her back into the garage. I wiped her tears and I told her, we'll buy new boots, we'll buy you new boots. But nothing I said calmed her. She screamed louder and said, no, I want my boot. Then Kevin showed up, her dad. He came out into the garage after hearing her crying and Olivia told him between her hiccups of tears and gulps of air about how her mom took off her boot. The dog came, he just came in the garage and he took it. He just stole it and he wouldn't drop it. And she ran really fast, but she couldn't catch him. And now he was gone. Olivia looked at her dad and her dad looked at her and he said, you wanna go look for it? No. No, no, I thought, no, don't say that. That is such a bad idea. That dog and boot could be anywhere. They will never find it. He was just giving her false hope. I faced Kevin and gave him the look. You know, the glare, the look that said, don't do this. But Olivia didn't see my look. She just saw her dad. And she nodded her head up and down and said, we'll find it, right, Daddy? We can try, he said, ignoring my look. Olivia twisted out of my arms and grabbed her dad's hand with both of her hands and pulled him towards the car. Let's go, Daddy, let's go. He opened the car door. He helped her climb up, get settled in her booster seat. He pulled the seat belt down and across her lap and buckled her in. He shut the door and walked around to the driver's seat where he opened the door and slid behind the steering wheel. 
He started the car and as he backed the car out of the garage, I saw Olivia. She leaned her face close to that window, staring, searching, and hoping. 30 minutes later, I heard the door bang open of the house. Olivia ran and stood before me, holding the boot high in the air. Mama, we found it. We found it. I looked at her prize. I looked at Kevin. And he explained that after several minutes of driving and searching and looking, they, they saw the dog. But his mouth was empty. He didn't have the boot anymore. So they pulled to the side of the road and Kevin got out and just walked, just walked and searched and hoped that he would find it. And there, in the odds and ends of a construction site, they found the dirty boot. Olivia put her boot on that night and wore them all night. And every time it snowed that winter, she put them on again and again and again. And when spring cleaning arrived, she refused to let me touch them. I forgot about the boots until a couple years later when I found them in the back of her closet. And I couldn't give them away. I put them in a box next to her baby booties and peewee soccer cleats. Olivia's grown now. Work meetings and graduate school have taken the place of pink and white snow boot expeditions, but she comes home often. She takes off her coat and plops her backpack in the middle of the floor, and she sits and talks, especially with her dad, who was recently diagnosed with stage four cancer. And sometimes silence takes over the talking and she dozes in the chair with her computer open in her lap while her dad naps in the bed next to her. But today, she's not snoozing in the chair. She's standing in the same garage where years ago she had sobbed about her boot. This time, however, she's 23 years old and her dad is 60. Ready, Daddy? She asks, at 23, he's still daddy. Kevin smiled and said with a tinge of sarcasm and maybe with a little hint of exasperation or exhaustion, said, let the fun begin. It's chemo day and Olivia wants to take him. She pats his back and gives a little one-armed hug. You're going to be okay, Daddy. You're going to be okay. She walks to the door. She walks to the car. She opens the passenger door and helps him slide into his seat. She reaches for the seat belt, pulls it around his body, and buckles him in. She shuts his door, then walks around to the driver's side and slips behind the steering wheel. Olivia starts the engine and I wave goodbye 
as she backs the car out. Both of them staring, searching, and hoping. That was the story, Snow Boots. Sometimes we find the snow boot, and sometimes we don't. But either way, when we choose hope, no matter how dismal and anxious or lonely our lives might be, we are choosing to trust God in his goodness and in his power and in his promises. So wherever you are, whatever you're doing, just hold on to that hope. I'm excited to introduce you to today's guest, Skylar Clark, who is a marriage and family therapist and turned counselor. Skylar was born and raised in Portland, Oregon, and at the age of 14, moved to Heber City, Utah. He later served a mission for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in Kenya. After his mission, he worked in software development for a few years before he decided to pivot to therapy. Skylar today has a wonderful story about unconditional love and hope. Skylar, welcome. I'm excited to be here and tell the story. Well, yeah, I want to start out um, a bit by going back in time um, a little. Raylene told me about the story you told her with your brother and the boat. <laughs> um, can you take us back and tell us what happened? Yeah, it's a bit of an adventure, so get ready. Uh, my younger brother, Clayton... I think he was about five and I was about seven. And we were always up to chaos. And we decided that we're going to go adventure into the garage, see what we could go do. (laughs) And the house was just built. So it still had that fresh paint smell. Um, The cherry wood cabinets were just painted. (laughs) And... uh, We ended up crawling into the wakeboard boat. It was under cover, uh, under its boat cover. And uh, I, of course, being the older brother, I had to pull down the ladder so that we could reach and crawl into it uh, from the swim deck. And so we get in the boat and my brother quickly finds a flare gun. I kind of turn my back to him because I don't want to know what's going on we're told not to touch that and so I explore other parts of the boat and next thing you know it we we were done and we put the back we put the boat back to how it was and we even got out of the boat put the ladder back up and then we went to go watch our favorite show uh, I Love Lucy and uh, while we were watching that show, um, the house filled with smoke. And all of us started screaming. Parents started. Parents came in. They were like, get out of the house, get out of the house. And part of me realized that that was probably Clayton's fault. And so we ran out of the house. And I think it was like December, it was cold. And uh, long story short, the, the garage caught on fire. And then the garage caught 
uh, the other parts of the house on fire. Um, and there, were, there was smoke damage everywhere. It was a brand new house. And luckily the fire department was right across the street from us. And, and so they responded. They're frantically getting out hoses, hooking up hoses, what, you know, putting water on the house. And maybe that's not too important part of the story, but uh, there was just a, a ton of chaos. Firefighters all over the place, people asking what happened, how did this start? And a few days later, uh, my dad started interrogating all of us. And there's six children, five boys, one girl. And my dad started at the oldest. And he asked, do you know anything about this fire? Like, how, how can this house catch on fire? It's like, no, I don't know anything. And then goes to my sister, do you know anything about this? No, I'm, I have no idea either. And then... Eventually, he, you know, he talks to me. Do I know anything about it? No. Absolutely not. Nothing. Which might be a little, little lie. <laughs> and then he gets to my brother. And my brother, my youngest brother, he has a bit of a speech impediment. And uh, my dad asked Clayton, the one with the flare gun, and he's like, do you know who caught the boat on fire? And he just kind of pauses, and we're all looking at him. And he's like, yeah, it was a whopper, <laughs> a.k.a. a robber. And, uh, <laughs> and that sparked my dad's interest. And, uh, but most of you don't know this, that when, when your house catches on fire, the fire marshal is in charge of an investigation. And the fire marshal started asking all these complex questions uh, to my dad and talking about insurances and insurance fraud and, and a bunch of these you know, topics that I didn't understand. And so my dad, under pressure, he once again re-interrogated everyone. Do you know anything? We, need, we just need some information on how this happened. Once again, everyone said, said, I don't know anything. And then got to Clayton again. And he's like, yeah, Robert did it. My dad's like, can you elaborate more on like who this robber is? Like, We need to know. We need to find out. He's like, I don't know. It was a robber. So long story short, um, not much information was obtained by questioning his children. And so he, he did the next best thing, and that was a, through a bribe. <laughs> there's, there's a place called TCBY Yogurt. Now, this is in Portland, Oregon. And he took each of us to TCBY Yogurt, and he bought us whatever we wanted, whatever ice cream yogurt combination we could, we could uh, conjure up. It's a smart strategy. He must have been getting a lot of yogurt himself. <laughs> yeah. yeah, let's just say eating is a, is a great coping skill. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so he goes through all of us, and he gets to Clayton again uh, after he's eating his yogurt. 
and he's like, who, who burnt the boat down? My brother said again, a robber, <laughs> a robber. <laughs> and, uh, and then my dad asks, are you the robber? Robert did it. And then my dad starts explaining fire insurance and home insurance. He's like, you know, Clayton, it's it's okay if you're the robber. It's totally fine. Like, we have insurance. Everything's taken care of. It's not going to be a big issue. And then Clayton admitted again. He's like, a robber did it. And then my dad said, and this was probably the smartest thing, he said, Clayton, no matter what you've done, I will always love you. Did you light that boat on fire? And my brother responded, yes, I'm the whopper. You know, I can recall a few key memories from my childhood growing up, from my parents and my siblings. And I, they seem to, I just carry them with me no matter how old I get. Is this, like, one of those memories for you? And if so, like, what impact has that had on you and even your brother Clayton as you guys have grown up? (laughs) Uh, I think it was very impactful. Uh, One, I think it gave all of us, all the Clarks, um, to have confidence and to explore. I mean, if we could burn the house down, and our dad can still love us, then man, what what can we not do? So that was, I'd say that's the biggest thing, is it built confidence in me, it built confidence in Clayton, and confidence in, in all the other siblings, just to be confident and do what you want, go and explore. Yeah. I think also, too, listening to your story, I I was relating a lot to Clayton, you know, in this moment where, your dad asks him multiple times, are you the, the wobber? Did you light the boat on fire? And Clayton just repeatedly, no, 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 it was not me. I can think of so many times like in my life, whether it's my parents, something like religion related or something like even just to myself where it's, I feel so either it's like shame or I'm scared and I will just continually um, admit like or not admit right the the truth yeah. of what I've done and I think there's such like power in that moment when Clayton was able to say like y- yes you know I, I I'm the wobber <laughs> you being a, a therapist you know working as an intern therapist do you see similar moments as you're working with people when they're able I don't know even just yourself moments where it's just like acceptance or I don't know I just think that's when we really get like better and can make improvements in our life at least me when it's like yeah I'm, I messed up or something like that I, I would say you know from that lesson I would say hope is an antecedent to all that which is good and and Clayton had that hope uh, because he understood He understood our father's love and and converting that back into to therapy is understanding that you are loved 
you know, understanding your identity, understanding your worth is, is the antecedent to all that which is good. I think everyone has moments where they probably feel hopeless. I know I do all the time and some darker than others. And I think what you said is, is perfect about like love really is the catalyst a lot of times for being able to have hope. Um, what kind of power do you feel like hope has and like impact in our lives being able to have hope? I, th- I think hope is the, again, probably repeating myself, but it's, it's the antecedent of everything that which is good. And the hope that I try to instill into people's lives is, is their identity. Their hope is directly connected to their identity. What do you mean by that, that your hope is connected to your identity? If you don't understand who you are, there's, there's no way you're, you're going to proceed in life with, with a positive outlook or with an understanding of things that you can or, or should do. And, and your identity, one, can, can be defined by how you, how you look at yourself and how others look at you but also how God looks at you. And not only that, because we know God has a perfect understanding, but how you look at God. So that would be your identity. Hmm. So when people are struggling to find hope, when they feel like it's gone, is that typically when you work with them, what you'll do is kind of going back to maybe help them reestablish their identity to find that hope or what do you do at first it's what do you like to do and then secondly it's what do you want to be doing and then you can move forward into like what are your values what do you find important and you can think of ethical and moral dilemmas and and maybe come across your values um, but I ask that as a client, you go and you participate in, in hobbies that you enjoy. And then you ponder on, how does this fulfill my life? How does this make me happy? Why? Getting at the root cause of the why. Oh, I value authenticity. I value openness. Or simple like me, I value people just in general. As long as I'm around people, I'm happy. But I only found that out because I get outside the house, I say things to people, tell some jokes. (laughs) Maybe not funny. You told me some funny jokes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks. Um, But that's, that's how we can reorient to our identity. And then after that, you can explore your theological or religious beliefs and and how you relate to a supreme being. Did you feel a shift in hope for yourself? I know you said you were in 
software development before. I did software, yeah. And then pivoting to therapy, which is a huge pivot. 180 degrees. Yeah. (laughs) Did you feel a change in hope in your life when you made that pivot? I don't know if hope is the right word there, but you're... I, I felt a ton of hope. It was, and this is not being negative towards software development or software developers. I love the rules and the, the I guess, the protocols and, and the way of life from being a software developer. Helped me to be more organized, um, I guess a little bit more uh, analytical. <laughs> um, but for myself, as I typed and typed and typed, it moved me further away from what mattered most to me. And I didn't know that. And that was people. So people are the most important to me. And so, yeah, so when you move away from what's most important to you, you do remove your hope. And why? Because you're moving yourself away from your identity, your true identity, what, what you long and seek after. That is so interesting. I feel like I'm having an epiphany as I'm listening to you right now. (laughs) You know, one thing that comes to mind, I grew up in a a big Disney-loving family. (laughs) And I think of, like, almost every fairy tale we grew up on, whether it's, like, Cinderella when she gets locked in the tower and her stepmother smashes the glass slipper or, I know, stepmothers right now <laughs> or Belle when she's locked in the castle and doesn't think she'll ever see her father again or you know every fairy tale seems to have this moment where it seems like hope is gone and then you know things things turn around but it makes me wonder like when we do lose hope And then, I like what you say, being able to go back to our identity, who we are, and we're able to find it again. How do you think that gives us power going forward if we didn't ever encounter those hard moments in the first place? So how does hope empower you? Yeah. Yeah. The result of hope is if needed, forgiveness. It also enables bravery. It also enables peace. You're allowed to approach a a problem with some solutions. Or at least the perspective that there will be a solution if I look at it. Have you ever had um, a time in your life where you felt like hope was gone and and what did you do back to software uh, development i i kept looking back now i I realize this but i kept looking for hope in the wrong places i i would work 70 80 hours in a week to to prove my worth or to learn a new skill so that i could impress the team and there really was no hope. There was ambition. There was hard work. But there, there was never this, this hope. 
It was, it was a fleeting cause when in reality, all I needed to do was not be better. I just needed to be with others. And so definitely when I was trying to be above people and not just with them, that was hopeless. There was no hope. How long were you in that position? Oh, <laughs> uh, at least two years. So what was the catalyst for change? <laughs> catalyst to change? Uh, a realization of what matters most to me. And, and that was brought through, you know, obviously great uh, insight from parents. Hey, we've noticed this about you. You're different. Um, personal insight, um, but what I also believe to be uh, inspired insight. And ultimately, I knew, I knew how I felt inside, and I knew how I felt before, and I, I just knew I could get there again, but things had to be different. Hmm. Well, I mean, kudos to you. I think it's probably took a lot of bravery and courage to make such a life change like that. It would have been much easier for me to to do anything else. It was the most difficult and hardest thing to change your career, to change your mindset, to change your daily activities and to, to throw away your means of making money. And to go back and start paying a school in hopes that one day you'll make money again. <laughs> it, there's a million things I would have done before making a career change, um, but I did it. And uh, it's been difficult, but it's been rewarding. Well, having gone through what you've gone through, it makes me think of, I mean, there's so many people my age, I mean, any age, I think, really, who struggle with such a wide variety of things, like be it disease, death of a loved one. I just went through a breakup, which I know probably sounds silly, but to <laughs> me, it feels really hard. <laughs> like, how, what would you recommend to people like the first step they can take, the first thing they can do to try to find like hope again in their lives. Absolutely. Um, you know, you might think that it was the person that was broken up with or that broke up with you that has removed you from hope. Um, but in reality, it's, it's people that instills hope in us. And so to, to, to obtain hope is to connect with people. You don't have to date them. You don't even, you know, you don't have to see them every day, but connect with people. So I'd say if you want hope, connect with people. You don't even have to marry them. <laughs> you just get to know them. Yeah. Spend time with them. And then on a theological perspective... Um, connect with connect with your God connect with Christ connect with the Holy Spirit 
because that that is the only sure way to to have hope. And one, when you connect with a supreme being, when you connect with the Holy Spirit, it echoes what I said previously. Your identity is amplified. You begin to look at yourself in a way that you should. You know, that actually reminds me of a quote that, um, it's actually my mom that shared it with me. And it's from Elder Dieter F. Uchtdorf, and I'll just read what he says. Um, He said, because God has been faithful and kept his promises in the past, we can hope with confidence that God will keep his promises to us in the present and in the future. In times of distress, we can hold tightly to the hope that good things, or excuse me, that things will work together for our good. So I know you kind of just spoke to this, but how does hope in, in God or the Holy Spirit, whoever you know we perceive that to be, how does that sustain us? I'm going to start crying. It's okay. <laughs> crying is okay to do. It is. <laughs> God or the Supreme Being or the Holy Spirit or in the Holy Spirit They are there to lift us up when we don't want to lift ourselves up. And so all you you can do is be your best self and be authentic and, and honest. And when you're in those moments of either happiness or misery, your authenticity and honesty will then push you towards connection with 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 God. Ultimately God is your friend and he is always there for you no matter what. Kind of like my brother. No matter what you've done, no matter what you've done, I will always love you. And and love comes in the various forms, right? It could be an act of a neighbor could be a feeling that you have could be something that someone says um, but his his love is always there and you can you can always feel it if you seek that connection with him I think that ties perfectly back to what you said in the beginning between love and hope well Skylar Thank you so, so much for being on our podcast today and sharing your stories. I think I'm going to always remember that in moments where I feel hopeless or need to love someone that it's okay to be the wobber. (laughs) (laughs) But based on, you know, we ask the same question at the end of every podcast. Based on what we've talked about today, if you could slip a metaphorical three-by-five card in a lunchbox to share with everyone. What would your three-by-five card say? It maybe need to be a three-by-six, but... That's okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> find true connection. Period. And then I have another statement. Sorry, it's a three-by-six card. And I would quote my grandfather. And this is left to your interpretation, but don't take no wooden nickels. I asked Skylar later 
what he meant by this phrase. But upon his request, he asked me that I leave it up to you for your own interpretation. To all our listeners out there, thanks for being with us and thanks for listening. Don't forget to like and subscribe and leave a review if you'd like. Um, Our email is sharemystory at lettersfromthelunchbox.com. We would love if you would share your story with us and potentially bring you on the podcast to share it with others. We'll see you guys with a new episode in two weeks. Thank you.